Well, it's great to see everyone this evening. We start a new uh, book in the Bible. I'm excited about that tonight. We're going to go to the Old Testament. If you want to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, I want to study the Kings. And to do that, we have to start with uh, the Samuel. And I say the Samuel because in the original Hebrew manuscript, there is no separation between 1 and 2 Samuel. It's just Samuel. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to pick that up. It'll be a wonderful study for us. Uh, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts simply used that title, and that's because they saw it as one book. That's what it was. It was just one book. Uh, now, the author and date. I want to give you just a little contextualization. So we'll look at the background, uh, the author, the date. The, the main setting of what we're, what we're looking at in the book of Samuel. And so we, we don't know who the writer of First and Second Samuel really is. Uh, some attribute authorship to Samuel himself uh, or to Samuel, to also uh, Nathan, and also to Gad. And the reason they contribute to all those men is because of first, write this down if you want, those of you who are Bible students, hopefully you have a notepad with you and you can write these things out. Let me also say that you can, you can go online. Uh, who is it through, Deb, that we order our journals? Christianbook.com? Okay. Uh, if you go to, I think it's Christianbook or Christianbooks.com. Okay, great. Deb will uh, put that out for us so we know. But you can pick up a journal on 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. That gives you something to write in if, if you choose to do that. But the reason they say uh, that possibly all three are part of the writing team of this book is because of 1 Chronicles 29.29. But we know that Samuel cannot be the writer of this book because his death is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter. 25 verse 1, which is before the events associated with David's reign over uh, when he took when that took place. So, so Samuel didn't even live uh, through the what the book covers, what this particular book in the Bible covers. So it couldn't have been him. Now he could contribute while he was living. He probably contributed, but he would not be the author. Also. Nathan and Gad were prophets of the Lord during David's lifetime and would not have been alive when the book of Samuel was written. So uh, I, I don't think we would look to those three, even though there are scholars who would say that possibly those are the guys who wrote it. I don't think we know. We don't know who the human author is. But here's what we do know, that whoever wrote this book, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is not a book written by man with man's ideas. This is a book that was given to man by God through the Holy Spirit. It is anointed, it is canonized in Scripture, and there was a very, very extremely uh, tough criteria that you had to follow in order to be canonized. So this is absolutely a book of the Bible. The books of Samuel contain no clear indication when it was written. It would have been written uh, after the division of the kingdom between Israel and Judah. And that took place in 931 B.C. Remember, there was a divided kingdom? Well, this book would have uh, been written after that. And because of the many references to Israel and Judah as distinct entities, we also have evidence of a post-King Solomon date of the writing. So uh, th this, we're not really sure. What we do know is that First and Second Samuel are included in the former prophets uh, in, the, in the Hebrew canon along with Joshua, Judges, and First and Second Kings. So that's just something you might want to keep track of, those of you who like to look at the, uh, the chronology and, and understand a little bit more about this particular book of the Bible. Let me give you just a little more info in terms of an introduction. Uh, the two books are titled Samuel, not because Samuel wrote all of them, but because they described his great ministry in Israel and the legacy that he left behind. Uh, the background and setting, uh, let me share this with you, that the majority of the actions that are recorded in First and Second Samuel took place in and around the central highlands in the land of Israel. So this would have been central holy lands. 
This would have been at an elevation of uh, probably 1,500 to 3,500 feet, but all the events that are surrounding uh, this book, uh, it probably spanned a period of about 135 years, uh, scholars say. So now you're getting a picture that this was a specific time in Israel's history when the north and south were separated, and this book, the activities that are recorded, happened in the midst of those two nations. And they happened in the mountainous region. Okay, there is a, you know, there is a, the Dead Sea being below sea level, and we know that much of the Holy Land, there are flat areas, desert wildernesses that are just above sea level, but, but the Holy Land is filled with a lot of mountains as well. This would have been more in the mountainous region. Um, now, uh, the major cities of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel, are to be found in those central highlands. Let me give you the major cities that we'll talk about as we read this book. Uh, there's Shiloh. Uh, that's where the residence of Eli the priest resided, and that's also where the tabernacle. Uh, was, and that's also where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was kept, at the tabernacle. So Shiloh, this is prior to Jerusalem, Shiloh would have been the place for the worship of God. This is where God's presence dwelled. It dwelled in the tabernacle, in Shiloh, okay? Then also Ramah, R-A-M-A-H, uh, that's the hometown of Samuel himself. Then there's Gibeah. Gibeah is the headquarters of Saul. Uh, then there's Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was the birthplace of who? David in the Old Testament. David. Interesting. Remember, we're, we're not in the New Testament now, folks. We're, we've gone back to the Old Testament. Okay. And then Hebron, H-E-B-R-O-N. And that's David's capital when he ruled over Judah. But then, of course, uh, there's also... Uh, reference to Jerusalem, which is ultimately the city of David, okay? So now you get a little background feel. The events of 1 and 2 Samuel took place between the years 1105 B.C., which is the birth of Samuel, to 971 B.C., which recorded the last words of David. And again, that's a span of about 135 years. Now, during those years, Israel was transformed from a loosely knit group of tribes under the judges. Remember, we studied the judges. That's, that's part of the reason why we're in First and Second Samuel. We've skipped over Ruth, but, but the reality is the judges. We talked about the judges. That's when Israel was in apostasy. They were, uh, had drifted away from God. And, and so uh, this is a continuation. In First Samuel, there is still a drift. There is still a waywardness. Even among the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel, there was a, a waywardness, okay? And, and then, of course, there's this centralization that takes place under a monarchy. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul, King Saul. We're going to see that in this study. He reigned from 1052 to 1011 B.C., and then David was king of the United Monarchy from 1011 to 971 B.C., and then there's the divided kingdom. Okay, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. It's going to be a great study. One of the reasons I chose this study is because there are so many uh, rich um, uh, principles and, and truths that so fit today. In fact, even in the first chapter of 1 Samuel, we're going to see a real, uh, how what we saw yesterday and what we've seen in our country for quite some time, we're going to see this same thing happening in that day. Okay, so it's very much a, a relevant book. It is a practical book with great insight for how we as Christians should live our lives. So let's go ahead and begin with prayer, and then we'll get started in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Father, uh, we have to stop and pray first and foremost before we study the Word of God. But we also uh, are burdened and heavy tonight, many of us, because of the, the, the conflict in our nation. And as often the case in nations, it's not the people, it's the leaders that are in conflict. 
And Lord, uh, we suffer the consequence of that. But Lord, we tonight are turning our eyes off of our nation, off of those who are in power, who have authority to rule over us. We are turning our focus to you. And in the New Testament, you said that you are the one who has put people in place of service over us and that you have in the past used wickedness in order to bring a chastisement, in order to bring a discipline to us. Lord, we don't know what the future holds. I know that uh, there are those who want to conjecture what's going to happen, and they say they know, they think they know. Uh, no one knows. Only you, Father, are the one who truly knows the heart of man, and you know what's coming. But what you want from us is our full attention throughout the future. You want us to focus on you and be ready at any opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we start this series out of the Samuel and the Kings because we want to come into agreement. We want to come in, into alignment. We want to come under your headship as you teach us from the Word of God so that we can be mighty warriors for the Lord, that we can stand when it's not easy to stand and we can speak when others are silent and we will see the, the God of our, of our nation move in our behalf. And that's what we pray for. We pr believe, Lord, that this nation was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles. We, we believe not that this nation is in any way, shape, or form under God at this time, the way we're acting. But there are those in the nation who are under the leadership of God, who recognize it, who fear you, and who desire to live for you. So God, for whatever comes, we pray that you would prepare us tonight in this study for the next week, for the next few days. And each week, may you just give us more fuel for the fire to lift up the name of Jesus so that the name of God would be great again in this land. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel 1. Let's set the context coming into chapter 1 for you a little bit further. As the book opens, it's the period of the judges. We're still in the judges. The final two judges, number 13 and 14, would be Eli and, and Samuel. Okay, They're the final two. Now, there is no king in Israel as of yet. Uh, it's in a state of turmoil. It's a time of confusion. It's a time when Israel is vulnerable to the Philistines. It's a time when they are debauched morally. They are absolutely away from God, living for their own cause, their own will, living for their own sensuality. They're completely consumed by the five senses and fulfilling the five senses for personal reasons. They have taken their eyes off of God. When the death of Samson took place, the kingdom was divided and leaderless. The Philistines were hanging on the edge. The priesthood was corrupt. Moral scandals were rampant among the family of the priests, the people of God. Those in the Levitical tribe who were supposed to point people to God were the most corrupt. They were leading the people into sin. The nation was weak. The nation was impotent. And worst of all, 1 Samuel 3, 1 says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now tell me that we're not a nation today that is likened to the nation of Israel in this period of time. That's why we're in this study, to see how God would have us act and live and in a time when there's turmoil and there's confusion and there's devastation and destruction. Now, not even God had anything to say at that time. Or he couldn't find a vessel that was pure enough to speak through. The Bible says in, in, in 1 Samuel 3 that the word of the Lord was rare. God just wasn't speaking. The people were so far gone. Remember how Paul talked in the Romans chapter 1, how God gave the people who were ungodly, he gave them over to a reprobate mind. He gave them over 
to sensuality, to sexuality, immoral sexuality. He gave them over. If you want it, I'll give it to you. Go for it. He pulled back. He allowed them to go the, to the full extent of sexual sin and perversion that they chose. And in the same sense, that's what happened uh, some 1,400 years earlier. Okay? This is a time when uh, Israel is in serious trouble. The nation needed a great leader. They needed a great man. And God needed a great woman to shape that great man. Samuel is one of the greatest men who ever walked on the face of the earth. Uh, he's not only the product of the work of God, but he is the product of a godly mother. God gave Samuel a godly mother. And she gave to her nation and to the world and to us the greatest legacy a woman can ever give, a godly child. A woman who raised her child in the Lord while she had him, and then she completely surrendered him to the Lord. She gave him as a sacrifice. She gave him to the Lord for the Lord's use. Verse 1, there was a certain man of, I can't even pronounce that, I'm not going to try, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Now I can say that. The son of Jer Jer Jeroham, uh, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, uh, an, an Ephrathite. Now, let me just tell you, we're not going to ever put that on anybody who reads Scripture on Sunday morning for us. <laughs> I would never do that. If, if, if you ever are asked to read and that we give you a passage like that, know that we really are bothered by you and we're trying to get even, okay? <laughs> That's just not fair, is it? It's not right. Okay. At this strategic time and place, God began His plan as He almost always does. How is that? Whenever God wants to institute and carry out a plan, He always does it through a person. You might want to write that down. Because that person, for what God wants to do in the next 12 months, might be sitting in your chair. God can do His work by Himself, that's not a question. He can do it by angels, they do it all the time. And, and He can do it by any number of other means. But His normal method to carry out His will on the earth is to find a certain man and work through him. Elkanah was a descendant of Zuf, and his family line shows that he was a Levite. I know it said above that he came from Ephraim or that he was in that region, and that's true, but he's not an Ephraimite. He's a Levite. He's of the priestly tribe, the Levitical tribe. And Elkanah had two wives, so he was a polygamist. <laughs> Here God is using this man to push his agenda forward. And believe me when I say Elkanah was a godly man. But God doesn't skip over the ugly stuff. This man was also a polygamist. Understand that polygamy was a fact of life in the ancient world. But I want you to know this too. Even though polygamy was rampant, even throughout the Bible, patriarchs were polygamists. Yet, never once does the Bible put polygamy in a favorable light. Not once. Never. In fact, the opposite is true. Where there's polygamy, even among God's people and God's leaders, it always brought trial and trouble to them. It was never right. It was never right. Strife and conflict always characterized polygamous families in the Bible. Now, already we see a problem that's brewing by the fact that Peninnah had children while Hannah had none. Let's read that if we can. He had two wives, the name of the, this is verse 2, of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Okay? So there existed this intense competitive relationship between the two wives of Elkanah. One theologian said, quote, listen, polygamy was always a sin, though in the patriarchs and ancient saints it was a sin of ignorance. 
Jesus actually said regarding divorce, the same kind of a thing. He said, which also was common, he said, it was not so from the beginning. Divorce was not so from the beginning, but divorce was common in the day that Jesus walked the earth. Polygamy was not there in the beginning, not in that way. But yet, it was common in the days of the kings. In Malachi 2.15, it says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Don't be faithless to the wife of your youth. That's at the end of the Old Testament. Now, let's move on. This man, verse 3, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of, Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons uh, of Eli, and their names Hophni, or Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So get the picture, Eli is the high priest. His two sons are priests under him. According to the law of Moses, Israelites couldn't worship God through sacrifice at any other time or in any other place than at Shiloh. You only offered sacrifice by the priest where the tabernacle was kept because that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. That's where the presence of God resided. And that's where you would make your sacrifice. No other place. So that meant that all the Jews would leave their home territory and they would take a journey to, for the great feast where they would make sacrifice and they would have this wonderful celebration of a fellowship meal. Can you It'd be like once a year you take a vacation and you travel to the place where God resides with man and you bring your animal for sacrifice, and then a portion of that animal you keep and you offer it, and there's this great celebration that takes place. I mean, as, even as you leave your little territory, you're getting on the main path heading towards Shiloh, and, and other people are leaving their territories, and they're getting on the same path. It's like a little highway, and you're running into the same people that you met a year ago or six months ago at the other feast, and you're, you're, you're continuing to build relationships. By the time you get there, people are happy, man. This is a wonderful experience. And so they would bring their sacri sacrifice all the way to Shiloh. Also, it spoke of the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. They were priests of the Lord. It's interesting that these two priests in particular are mentioned by name. Why? Because there's a story that will come up in our text about these two priests. Also, because they were notoriously wicked priests. We'll learn more about their wickedness in chapter 2. But suffice it to say right now that Elkanah, this man of God, must have been a godly man because he brought his sacrifices to Shiloh faithfully. And he brought them before these two wicked priests. In other words, there was no other place to go to make the sacrifice, and he was not making the sacrifice to these two men who are wicked. He's making it to God. And so he's simply being faithful to God even though there is wickedness in the camp. I think that's something that we can all hold on to right now. You don't stop supporting or praying for the leadership of our nation just because you don't like them. Because they don't hold the same values that you hold. Because you think they're corrupt, and maybe they are. This is exactly the same story here. Hophni and Phinehas are corrupt men. They are wicked. When we read it next chapter, next week, you're going to see it. But yet Elkanah continued to come to Shiloh to offer to the Lord, not to those men, his faithful sacrifice. You, you continue to support this nation, to pray for it, for the Lord's sake, because you want, because blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. 
Paul was very clear in the New Testament to say, obey those who are in our government. Because how you, how you treat them is how you're treating the Lord. Because the Lord's the one who allowed them to be there. So don't worry about whether they're corrupt or not. God knows. God will take care of it, believe me. Nobody gets away with anything in the end, including you and I. So we just need to keep our nose clean and stay focused on the Lord, trusting in Him. It would be good for all of us to practice 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way. You won't know what your wicked way is unless you seek His face. Then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive your sins personally, and I'll also heal your land. That ought to be the position, the posture of a Christian in our day, right now. That was the posture of this man of God, Elkanah, in his day. There are times when a people come under the leadership of a less than honorable pastor. What do you do? Well, if he's preaching error, if he's preaching heresy, get out of there. Because there's other churches you can go to, to for the worship of God. In that day, there was nothing else. There's no other temple. There's no other tabernacle. There's no other place where God's residing. It's only at Shiloh. You stay where God is, even in the midst of wickedness. But it, with a church, you know, I mean, no, you can, you can change churches. But you're not going to change, you know, the nation that you live in. So be faithful to God. Be faithful to God. Unfortunately for Israel, they didn't have another place to go. They had to worship at Shiloh. Verse 4, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So now we clearly see the pathology of polygamy. Elkanah had two wives, one he loved more than the other. One who had many children, the other could not bear children. The tradition would be for Elkanah to bring his family up to Shiloh to make his sacrifice and then prepare and eat a ceremonial meal at the tabernacle with his family. That's what you do, giving portions to his wives and to their children. The fact that he gave Hannah a double portion reveals where his true affections lie. And so polygamy is already a mess in that home. Here's a man of God, and he's got a mess on his hands. Verse 6, and her rival, now it's speaking of Peninnah as a rival to Hannah. Okay? Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, every year throughout the year, especially when they would go to the feast and all the children of Peninnah running around and, and here Elkanah is feeding them and her and, and there's this celebration and here's Hannah with no children and Elkanah rubbing it in her face year after year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now get the picture, okay? Put it in perspective. When a family traveled to Shiloh, they went there for the celebration of fellowship with God's people as they all made sacrifice to God, as they all worshiped God. Let me just say this. Worship of God is supposed to be fun. Worship of God is a celebration. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Enter His courts with praise. It's not supposed to be this, you know, funeral dirge music and we come in and everybody's got their head down and can barely make it in the door without, you know, belly aching about something. Stop navel-gazing. Lift your eyes unto the hills from whence cometh your help. And when you come into the presence of God, come to celebrate Him. Amen. And so that's what Elkanah did. That's what his wife Peninnah was doing. But she also had a wicked heart because she's also rubbing it in Hannah's face. 
Hannah couldn't come with celebration. While everybody else is celebrating and laughing and enjoying, Hannah is weeping. Hannah is growing bitter. Totally different picture. Verse 6, and her, her rival used to provoke her. I think that should be true of us today. Don't you that we, not that we should provoke each other, but true that we should come beyond all the mess with our eyes up looking at God to worship the Lord every Sunday. Listen, I don't know what the future holds, and you don't either. And I don't know what decisions will be made in our White House or in the Capitol, but every day, every time we come before the Lord, we come with joy in our hearts that we have been saved eternally. Whether you have temporal joy and happiness or not, you have eternal joy and happiness. Here in our text, the people would go up and just have a great time. But she's so burdened, she can't really enjoy the moment. What's the takeaway here? There's a great lesson for us. Behind Hannah's pain and her trial, there was a purpose of God. God used the trial of a closed womb to accomplish something great in Hannah's life to further the whole plan of salvation. Even though things were hard, God was still in charge. I'm telling you, this, this study is filled with wonderful nuggets of truth for us to hold on to. Here's a woman who's in sorrow and pain over the fact that she can't bear children, and God is behind it. You did see earlier in the text where it says God closed her womb because God had a plan with a closed womb. Stop trying to make everything in your life Pollyanna. Stop trying to make everything so easy. When God brings a trial, know that it's not a wah-wah situation. It's a what-what. What are you up to, Lord? I can't say I'm enjoying this, but I'm going to go with you. When I was in college, I was dating this girl, and man, I really liked her. We dated for about a year and a half, and we were getting pretty serious. And uh, I thought, man, this is the one. But i got to be honest with you, the whole time I'm dating her, I'm not really walking closely with God. I'm a thousand miles from home, and I'm sowing some oats, be honest with you. And I'm enjoying life, and I'm enjoying this girlfriend that I think is perfect. And then I, get, I, I recommit my life to Christ while I'm dating her. I mean, the Lord came over me, and I fell under such conviction, I wept bitterly over my sin sins. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that because to say you should compare your experience with mine. We should never compare. One person might weep bitterly over their sins. Somebody else never sheds a tear. Both have been touched by God. It's not about the emotional response. But I wept. And I remember coming out of that, that time of recommitment to God all of a sudden, with a three years behind me, two and a half, three years behind me in a business administration degree, I'm sensing a desire to serve the Lord. I don't know what to do with it. Did I just waste two and a half years? And what about this gal? I really lo I love her. And then I began as a new, you know, recommitted Christian I'm starting to think, well, I'm going to serve the Lord. And man, Lord, listen, that girl can play the piano. You do know she can play the piano. I'm reminding him of that because I'm really convinced that he forgot. And I'm saying, Lord, and she is a wonderful person, has a great sense of humor. She, is a, she has great people skills. Oh, God, she would make a great pastor's wife. And I'm trying to convince God. And the whole time, all I'm getting a sense in my spirit back is no. 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 And I was wrestling with the Lord over this matter. I was heavy. And finally, I remember just uh, surrendering to God. And these are the words that came out of my mouth in my prayer life. I said, Lord, I'm going to tell you right now, I am not happy with this. 
This is not the way I saw things playing out. But I love you more than I love anything or anyone in this world. And we broke up. Tough thing, man, to go through that semester seeing her every day in the commons and, and knowing that we're not together anymore. Tough time. But I'm telling you right now, God had a plan in my time of pain. While I was feeling a separation and aloneness from somebody that I loved, God was preparing me. He got me away from her so he could focus me on me and do a work in me and open a door for me to be a, a pastor. I am forever grateful to God. I thank the Lord for those times of pain and heartache that I experienced. And believe me, you even know some of my story. It hap it's happened more than once. That God's used pain and trial to do a better work in me. There has never been a time in my life that I've ever said, man, my life in the Lord has been so good this year, so easy this year. I feel like I'm just sledding downhill, man. It's just awesome. I'm, and, and, and I'm growing so much. No, my story is, man, I'll tell you, this past year has been tough. But boy, have I been growing. You don't grow on the mountaintop. You grow in the valley. Hannah is going to grow in the valley. She is doing something that most would try to ignore and move on. And yes, she is bitter and she is sad, but God's going to use that to bring about something so beautiful. Verse 8, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, before, ladies, we freak out on Elkanah here. His response to Elkanah reveals the sorrow that he feels for her. He's, he is showing sensitivity to the fact that she's not healthy and happy, and that bothers him. But he also <laughs> compares himself to the one thing she can't have. I wouldn't say that's the wise thing to do there. That takes me back to the night when I forgot my anniversary and I'm preaching revival somewhere. And uh, I called my wife just to check in with her. I forgot. No, it wasn't Anna. It was her birthday. Oh. <sighs> mm. And she was just kind of short, a little curt on the phone. And I'm thinking, well, honey, that's not normally the, you know, the way we communicate, with, especially when I'm away. I mean, and I hung that phone up, and I'm, I'm puzzled by it. And then it hit me. I picked that phone up, or back then, you know. <laughs> it didn't move quick enough, that dial, you know. And I said, honey, I am so sorry. I forgot your birthday. And uh, she was gracious. And then I stuck my foot in my mouth. When I get home, honey, I'm going to take you out and buy you a big dress. Her response, a big dress? Yee! It's just something we men do, okay? It comes natural. Ladies, don't think your guy is the only one that does it. We all do it, okay? We're not wired like you ladies. We can't see through things, and we only see one thing at a time. We can't figure it all out, okay? That's why God gave us you. All right. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. By the way, that bothers me because in chapter 2 you're going to see that it's their son, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are sleeping with the women who would hang out at the temple steps. Why would the women be at the temple step, steps, these prostitutes? Because, again, everybody gathered for a festival. There was drinking. There was strong drink. And it wasn't beyond the people of God to get inebriated in that day because the word of the Lord was rare. They were living after their own desires. And so right there, the prostitutes, they, they weren't staying down the street where the red light is. Uh, they're, they're right out in front of the temple waiting for the guys to come out so they can uh, have them. And 
And uh, here's, here's the priest, the high priest, sitting on a chair out front where this activity goes on. doesn't say that he participated. He did not for all that we know. But why? Why? And while he's there, Hannah, she just gets up from the dinner table, goes out, and she kneels down and begins to pray. And I want you to see this. Uh, verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. I, I love that. She began her prayer by calling on the Lord of hosts. This title is used 260 times in the Old Testament. Guess what it references? It actually speaks of the Lord of the mighty armies. So she's been getting beat up by, by Peninnah, telling her she's not worthy to be his wife because she can't bear him children. And she goes out and she appeals to the Lord of hosts, the, the army God. <laughs> I want, the, I want the, the one who's mighty to come down and, and, and handle my situation uh, to be her protector. And look at the last part of verse 11. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah promised her son to the work of the Lord, vowing he would be a Nazarite from birth. Now, let me explain this whole thing about the Nazarite vow. Usually, the Nazarite vow was for a short period of time. I don't want us to lose the level of sacrifice that Hannah is making before God. Because her son, if God would grant her a son, would also be a Levite. But, but she's saying, being a Levite isn't enough, Lord. I will also promise to raise him as a Nazarite, which is a greater commitment and sacrifice than even being a Levite. So I want you to see, what does it mean to be a Nazarite? Uh, abstinence from any product from a grape vine. He'll never drink wine. Signifying distance from all fleshly pleasures. Also, taking no part in any mourning for the dead, nor to come near a dead body, because the dead show the corruption and the fruit of sin. It also showed that the Nazarite had greater concerns than the ordinary joys and the ordinary sorrows of life. This is a huge commitment she is making to God to raise her son, while the, in the short time she has him, to be a Nazarite. Listen, from birth... Not a short stint like most men who would take the Nazarite vow from birth on. Also, never cutting the hair because it was a public visible sign to others of the vow. So now, not only are you walking in this vow before God, but everybody else knows you're walking in this vow before God. Then lastly, typically the vow of a Nazarite was taken for a specific and short period. Samuel and Samson both were unique because they were Nazarites from birth. That's interesting. Now, the child she is dedicating to be a Nazarite from birth was already dedicated. Again, to be a Levite. But that dedication wasn't enough. She could have settled to simply say he would be dedicated as a Levite, but her commitment, was, commitment to God was much deeper. This is a woman who out of her travail, out of her pain, out of her sorrow over not being able to bear a child, went deeper with God. And now she's praying fervently. What should our pain and our sorrow and our trials bring out of us? As believers, a deeper yearning for God, a deeper trusting in God, a deeper sacrifice before God. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, and by the way, that's a very weak uh, English translation. Instead of saying praying before the Lord, continued praying before the Lord, 
the original translation would say, as she multiplied to pray before the Lord. She multiplied to pray before the Lord. We probably only have a summary of Hannah's actual prayer here. So she probably really labored and was fervent and effectual for quite a while. Verse 12, again, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Again, that speaks of the time period of Israel. The fact that the priest would, would, would commonly think that she's a drunk was because that was common in that day, women drinking to the point of inebriation. So he's just thinking she's another woman who's of the world. She's a worldly woman. Uh, when it says she was speaking in her heart, it means that her lips were moving, but her prayer wasn't vocal. By the way, it is okay to pray aloud. When you pray aloud, oftentimes it helps you to better focus on what you're praying about. I do that. Uh, I, I, I will just alone, privately, pray aloud. Sometimes I cry out aloud. Sometimes I yell aloud before the Lord. It's okay. God can handle it. He's your God. But it oftentimes keeps me focused when I'm praying where I can hear myself praying. Okay? But at the same time, here, prevailing prayer doesn't need to be vocal. Effective prayer can be silent and simply from the heart. And Eli, verse 14, said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. So here's what, something we're learning about Eli. <clears throat> Let me take a little drink here. What we're learning about Eli is that he's not really discerning of things that a priest should discern. He does not have a strong sense of spiritual discernment. He's simply categorizing her to fit the other women who would come for celebration and end up drunk. He's throwing her into a category. Okay? Uh, the fact that he suspected Hannah was drunk doesn't speak well for, when, for, what, for what went on around the tabernacle or of his leadership, allowing it to go on. He, so he misdiagnoses Hannah's broken heart and completely ignores the sinful hearts of his two sons who, by the way, are sleeping with the women that are outside the temple. He absolutely knew it. In fact, he was confronted on it, and he still did nothing. We already know that the worship of God at a, it was at a very low ebb in Shiloh. Many of the prostitutes would hang out there. And so he's just throwing Hannah into that category. Look at verse 15. Hannah, knowing that Eli doesn't have good discernment, knowing that his two sons are wicked, yet still honoring the man of God, the man of God's choosing. Eli was God's choice to be the high priest. Look what she says, with respect. She doesn't blow up on him like we see so many men and women do today. We just quickly go off on somebody who's in a position of authority, a teacher with your child and the teacher who rightly disciplines the child. I know that doesn't happen in the public school. It happens in private schools. And they're simply doing their job, and you show up and learn that that teacher uh, disciplined your son, chastised your son for something, and you go off. You get sideways with the teacher. You show no respect to those who are in authority. Plus, you're teaching your son not to show respect for those in authority. That happens a lot in our world today. That is not how Hannah handles this matter. And Hannah answered, verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. That's how we know he categorized her as worldly. She even says, please don't categorize me. As a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out my, of my great anxiety and vexation. 
So th th that, that worthless woman, write that down or circle it in your Bible. Let me give you a little more uh, you know, information about that. It's a common term in the Old Testament, that word worthless woman. It is, it's associated with idolatry in Deuteronomy chapter 13. It's associated with rebellion in 1 and 2 Samuel. It's associated with lewd, sensuous acts in Judges 19 and 20. And in 1 Samuel chapter 25, it's a term used to speak of arrogance and stupidity. And in 1 Kings 21, it even speaks of murder. He has categorized this woman in that arena. And her response, which you would think she'd lose it on him, She's a woman of God. She respects the man of God, even though the man of God is woefully wrong in his estimation of her. And she simply states the truth. And she asks him, please don't categorize me like that as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So she simply defended her honor. Don't think that I'm a, in that group of people. I'm not that kind of a person. Why? Because she's a woman of virtue. She's a godly woman, a pure woman. So verse 17, Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. I guess that's his apology. Pretty weak. What he should have done was say, I am so sorry. I overstepped and I overspoke and I was wrong in my estimation of you. But instead he just sends her on her way and says, May God grant you what you've asked of him. I love the fact that Hannah didn't uh, accept Eli's accusation, but she also didn't respond in a haughty or arrogant way. There, there, there's something in that for us. Don't, wouldn't you agree? Amen. Verse 18, And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Wow, she's appealing to a guy who's not even, he he's, doesn't have much discernment. He's, he's, he's the priest in the day when God's not even hardly ever speaking. But she knows that he's God's man. And so she's going to him as if he's God. She's going to treat him the way she would treat God. Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Wow. Wait a second. Did you read somewhere in verse 18 that she got pregnant? That God honored her prayer? No. Not yet. She just prayed and gave, made a vow to God. And the priest said, may God grant you what you've requested of him. She walks away with nothing more than a promise. She walks by faith. She walks away, and now she's ready to eat some food. Now she's no longer sad. Now she can rejoice and enjoy the fellowship of the family at the feast. The change in Hannah's countenance shows that she received the promise by faith, which is necessary if you and I ever want to receive the promises of God. Listen, write this down, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. It says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, who, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You've got to walk by faith if you want to experience the promise. Walk by faith. Walking by faith means that you conceive something to be happening even though you can't see it. So you've got a joy as if it's already happened even though it hadn't happened. You walk by faith. I was texting with somebody today, and they were down in the dumps. Oh, there's no future for America. We're in trouble. I said, whoa, did God fall off the throne? Because He is, all is well. Walk like it. Talk like it. Live like it. Oh, my goodness. Verse 19, then... They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. So she was genuinely worshiping the Lord in faith before the promise was fulfilled. What a great picture of a Christian 
who has made the Lord their trust. That's what we ought to look like, folks. Verse 19, And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for the Lord, or asked for him from the Lord. Now, let's go back for a second because some of you might be hanging up a little bit, and maybe you should hang up when you see, and the Lord remembered her, as if the Lord can forget her or forget the promise. What that is, is an anthropomorphism. What I mean is, that's a way of explaining God's actions in human terms, even though it doesn't clearly show us the character of God. Uh, let me give you another one. Uh, in, in Joshua 10, 12 through 13, write that down. Joshua 10, verses 12 through 13. Here's what it is. I'm going to read it for you. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son... Stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. It's in the Bible that the sun stood still, and the moon stopped. And if you know anything about science, you know that the sun always stands still. <clears throat> it's the earth that's in orbit around the sun, right? So why would the Bible tell us a lie? It's not a lie. It's God who is giving something to us that fits our vernacular, not His. You don't get up and say, what a beautiful earth rise. It's a sunrise. You know the sun's not moving, but you say sunrise. You say moonrise, right? So that's all that is. Don't, don't think for a second that somehow God is capable of forgetting the promise that he gave to Hannah. He did not forget. He can't forget. Within, within him, there's no shadow of turning, no variance. Uh, he is immutable. His word is immutable. It never changes. It's always in play. And this is the situation there. Verse 21, The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So the next year, uh, Elkanah wants to take his family up to make sacrifice. She's like, I'm not going to go this year because the boy isn't weaned yet. I'm going to wait until he's weaned before I take him and hand him over to the Lord. Okay, so now understand in that culture, a child was usually not weaned until two years of age, sometimes three before a child was weaned, okay? So it's reasonable to assume that Hannah was in no hurry to wean Samuel. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him only. May the Lord establish his word. That's very interesting. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. This is a wonderful counsel from a godly man to his wife. Do everything in obedience to God so that we live to see His word established among us. What God told you He would do, you stay and you wean Him and you do everything that you made promise to God with and let God fulfill His promise. I, I love that. Here's a godly man leading his wife in godliness. Amen. That child is going to grow up and be a godly man. Now, wouldn't it be something if all of us who raise our children in the Lord saw our children in the Lord. It doesn't always work, does it? But what you can be sure of is they'll never forget what you put on them because the Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, is going to work them over. When, when you raise your child to know better and that child goes off on his own and sows his oats and does his own thing, and I understand that because I did it myself, I'm telling you it's like saying sick them to a dog when the Holy Spirit comes after that child. Just know that. Rest in that. Rest in that. Wouldn't it be something if all of our kids turned out the same in the Lord, where they love the Lord deeply? Wouldn't that be wonderful? But you know what? You didn't turn to the Lord from day one, and neither will your child. Some children are, will turn quicker and easier, and others will not. But you keep praying like Hannah. 
You keep bringing it before the Lord, like Elkanah is, is challenging his wife to do. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull. Now, in some of your Bibles, it actually says three bulls. That is an incorrect translation. It is actually one bull, but it's three years old. An ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. This had to be extremely hard for Hannah, if you think about it, and for Elkanah. But again, their godliness shines through. They were willing to fulfill the vow even at a great personal cost. What was the cost of fulfilling the vow? Handing over their son to the priest at the temple or at the tabernacle. That's their way of giving their son to the Lord for his use, for his purposes. Verse 25, then they slaughtered the bull and they, they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I can't think of a closer situation on this side of glory for the Lord saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I mean, this is a woman who did exactly what she promised before the Lord. Verse 28, Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, let's just understand the word lent here. It doesn't mean what you and I think in our day. It doesn't mean he's my son that I'm loaning to you. I own him, but I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you borrow my son. Okay? It's quite the opposite. The original language speaks of a reciprocal gift. You, Father, gave me a gift of a son, and I now am going to return that gift to you. That was my promise. That if you gift me a son, I will gift him back to you. Isn't that beautiful? It's interesting, my, my, my parents aren't here tonight, but uh, I, I, I never knew when I was a boy, I never entered my mind to be a pastor. That didn't. You know? I was the guy sitting on the back pew chair with Brian Hogan and Gary Garman and Pastor Berquist up there preaching away and all of a sudden he'd stop his sermon. There's silence. And when there's silence, you pay attention, you, all, you, hear, you know, you can, that's louder than speaking. And we'd look up, and he'd get our faces, and he'd say, Boys, when you stop talking, I'll continue. And every person in that church turned around and looked back there at Greg Simsterot, Brian Hogan, and Gary Garman, including my parents. And my father put the plaster where the misery is when I got home. I'm telling you right now. That was my childhood experience. That's what I experienced in the Lord. And, and I'm just telling you, Hannah here doesn't own this boy. My mom, uh, it wasn't until I became a pastor that she told me that from the time I was a little boy, uh, my Sunday school teacher came to her and said, I don't understand, Lou, I, I can't tell you why, but I sense that God is going to call Greg into the ministry. She never shared it. Never wanted to influence one way or the other. My name means watchman. Don't think for a second your name isn't significant to you. It says more about you than you know. Mine's watchman. A shepherd watching over flock. When I, when I think about those kinds of things, all I can do is fall to my knees in humility before Almighty God that He would allow me to serve Him in this capacity. Very thankful. And this is the heart of Hannah coming before the Lord. So thankful that the Lord honored her request and now she has the privilege of giving that little boy as a gift back to God. Wow. 
And he worshiped the Lord there. He worshiped the Lord there. Well, worship is a repeated characteristic of this particular family. Even in difficult situations, they were faithful to worship the Lord. And so guess what? This little boy had been taught the right way. And he knew what it was to worship the Lord. Praising God on the day you give your little son away may not be the easiest thing you'll ever do, but it does honor God and it pleases the Lord when we make a great sacrifice for Him, whatever that might be. We're told to bring a sacrifice of praise to the Lord even as we are told to bring a sacrifice of praise to God. Through Him, Hebrews 13, 15 says, let then us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. God's expecting us every time we gather to bring a sacrifice of praise. Your sacrifice might be that on the way to church you had to reach around and backhand your child because they're arguing and bickering and everything else. And by the time you walk through the door, you let that go and you bring a sacrifice of praise to God. You put your focus on God. Or you had a tough week. You lost your job. You come to church with a sacrifice of praise. That's what the scripture says, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Church is not about you. Church is about God. Come ready to acknowledge his name. Get excited about that. Even in the midst of your trial, get excited about it. Amen?